This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Next on Plains FM, it's Addictive Eaters Anonymous On Air. Welcome to Addictive Eaters Anonymous on Air, here on Plains FM. My name's Louise and I'm an addictive eater and the host of this show. This is an opportunity to share with you about how Addictive Eaters Anonymous works and to talk with an addictive eater who will share their experience of recovery from addictive eating. Well, how does AEA work? Sobriety in AEA is freedom from addictive eating and or mind-altering substances. AEA members achieve sobriety by sharing their experience, strength and hope with each other and living the 12-step program of recovery as a way of life by regular attendance at meetings, getting a sponsor, working the steps, keeping in contact with sober members and carrying the message of recovery. Members are freed from addictive eating and the obsession with food. At the heart of the AEA program is the spiritual concept of surrender. I'm in the studio today with Carla, who is a member of Addictive Eaters Anonymous and has been there for a good long time now. So Carla, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Louise, for having me. Quite all right. I have known you for, gosh, a couple of decades almost. Yeah, would be. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really always interested, I guess, in this program and going right back. And I remember one of the things that made me laugh about you very much in the beginning is you talking about, as a very young child, you were sort of taking care of the family or or responsible for the family. Tell me more about that. (laughs) Oh, but yeah, you just have to laugh, right? And we have to be aware of ourselves but also laugh at ourselves and yeah I am definitely an addictive eater and I have all of those personality traits of an addict and that I am extremely self-centered and I think the world revolves around me and I think I know best for everybody and that was very very early on as much as the food was a part of my life right from as far back as I I can remember my earliest memories are of food and wanting more food and wanting more the the better food the treat food but also that I knew best and even yeah when my sister was born when I was four years old thinking oh well I'm going to take care of her I'll do a far better job than my parents my poor parents you know God bless them. Yeah, just, and that carried on when, you know, I had a, a second sister born when I was six. And, yeah, the, it was just a part of my life to want to organise and control and have everything my way. Just have everything my way. Mm. Um, and everything go my way. 
So back then you could see already that you were keen on food, different to your sisters or, or did you see your appetite as different? Well for me it was the weight. Right. I was just always overweight as far back as I can remember. So my dad used to call me his baby elephant and my sisters weren't. My sisters weren't overweight and so I, I hated them, you know, like that was just so unfair you know. Yeah, that's I not just, fear. It's not fear. It's not fear. But then I was eating, constantly eating. And so was food freely available? I mean, when I grew up, food was dished out very sort of tightly controlled. And I'm always a bit amazed when people seem to have this access to food in their childhood. Mm. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I stole food and I stole money for food. Ah. So my mother had a um, an account down at the dairy and I would go down and just put food on her account. No, no understanding that she would then have to pay for it or that it would come up or you know anything like that. But I also yeah, just I would I would just lie and steal. I would swap my my I was often on you know on a healthy eating kind of a regime like my mother didn't want me to be overweight and that being overweight is unhealthy and so she would send me to school with carrot sticks and I would swap them with my friend for her toffee pops my friend was actually very thin and she didn't want her toffee pops I wanted her toffee pops and not just from my parents so I stole from my babysitters from my grandparents I did shoplift there was a lot of foreign currency in our our house because my dad travelled a lot and I I knew which dairy owner was partially sighted and so I would get coins that looked around about the same size as the New Zealand coins oh Oh, look I'm very clever very cunning Mm. Um, you know my babysitter would send me down for two dollar mix of lollies and I would tell her oh no the price has gone up to 1.5 cents as opposed to one cent a lolly. And I'd eat whatever to make it up to that amount. I was young. I was like 10 or 11, and I would like sit cross-legged on the grass figuring this out, figuring these lies out, so that I could get more food. I just wanted more food, and I would just always find a way to get more food. So because the food was ill-gotten, did that mean all the eating was in secret? Could your mother have looked at you and said, oh, I can definitely see Carla's eating too much, or was it all hidden away? I think some people saw that I was eating too much. I do remember one birthday party. It was a, We were a household that there was a lot going on, and there were lots of parties, and there were a, lot, a big circle of friends that my parents had. And I do remember one of the adults from another one of the families pointing out that I was the last child at the table. And I just remembered being so ashamed about that. Nobody had ever said that to me. So I, yeah, I'm sure there were some people that could see that I was eating too much. But no, but I don't know if my parents saw it because I remember it was a bit of a mystery and it was a bit of like take me to the doctors to see what was wrong with me and why I was putting on so much weight and is it because I've got puberty early? And I, I did. I did get my my period very early. But, you know, like there were, yeah, just, just 
they were looking for reasons why. So I, I think you're right, Louise. I think a lot of the eating must have been in secret. And so are you somebody who then, I mean, obviously your mother had you on the carrot sticks, but was there a point where you decided you wanted to try and control your weight? I mean, once you hit puberty, did you become a bit more aware that you didn't want to be big? What, what yeah, was going on for definitely. you there? I think, I think my memory of going on my first diet was from about the age of 11, so probably once I got to intermediate. And yeah, that would have been around having to start wearing a uniform and having to get a bigger size uniform. And then we moved overseas, and it was um, we we it was in an area where looks were quite important. It was you know just that sort of culture where looks were quite important, and people would comment. You know, they would call me the clever one and my sister the pretty one. Um, Ouch. <laughs> So it was just, yeah, I probably started dieting when I was about 11 and and I wanted, I didn't want to be overweight. I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be obese. I wanted to wear the same clothes that everybody else wore. And I, from about that time until I came into this fellowship, I would have dieted every single year and I would have done every single diet there is out there, the eat one thing every, you know, only eat cheese this day, only eat, you know, vegetables this day, only eat meat this day, or the only eating fruit until midday, and then, like, so many diets, and and all of the different paid diet clubs as well, And, and I could, I could lose... I've lost 10 kilos a year, 20 kilos a year, 30 kilo, up to 30 kilos a year. But there was, I've, I've heard it described in the fellowship as like there's an off switch, you know, there's an on switch. And like I was either losing weight or I was gaining weight. There was never a point where I was ever just okay, you know, like where, where it ever just kind of maintained. So, yeah, I would lose that weight, but every year I would put that weight on and more. And so I just kept on going up and up and up in my weight. A big wardrobe full of clothes, but nothing ever to wear because, you know, I had my fat clothes and my thin clothes. And, you know, it was hard living with that kind of constant, constant, constant battle with food. Definitely. So you were relatively young when you came in. Obviously... By the time you were well in your t- early twenties, you'd had enough. What was what what brought you in? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, my first twelve-step fellowship meeting was ten days before my twenty-third birthday, so I remember that day. A number of things had happened. You know, I think I'm, I'm sure I've heard you talk on this program about you know that addiction swapping from substance to substance and. I had, when I moved back to New Zealand in my uh, last year of high school, alcohol became a big problem. And then I got caught underage in the Palladium (laughs) with a fake ID. Um, And so I had to do some community service work there for having a fake ID. Heck, and it's (laughs) crim. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they were amazing, actually, because I had, yeah, it was a... driving license, driver's license. We, you know, I'm not going to tell people back in the day, the paper driver's license, it was, you know, you could just cut numbers out. Um, they gave me a traffic fine. 
So they were very aware that I was, I had a promising future, I was at university and they didn't want me to have a criminal conviction, which I'm very grateful now in the profession that I'm in. (laughs) But yeah, so that scared me enough to kind of keep me away from the alcohol and things, but but it, it was it was a pretty there was a lot of blackout drinking, there was a lot of doing stuff that I couldn't remember doing and a lot of hurting people. The man that I'm still married to now we met when we were seventeen and he would hold my hair back when I was vomiting and then I would tell him to go away because he was such a spoil sport and leave me to have my fun. Crikey, so, you're lucky he stuck around. Oh, so lucky that he stuck around. Like, I just, I can't, I can't, yeah, I'm very grateful for that. But a, a big part of that kind of trying to be better with the alcohol made it worse with the food. Like, I just, I just needed something to numb me. And the food was just my solution. It was just my answer. So I did go to university. I got my master's, this promising young future, and I had plans and designs for my life. It says in the big book, our little plans and designs, but I had plans and designs for my life. And one of them involved getting a particular job, which I didn't get. And then it took me a long time to get employment. And I think part of that was my weight and the how in the, in the industry that I was in, kind of, you know, that that was not going to get me a job. <laughs> oh, interesting. That, yeah. There was a sort of a discrimination there. I think so. Gosh. But also, I had a pretty... No, let me be clear that I'm also extremely self-centred. So actually, one of the, the, the job that I wanted to get, we had a full day of interviews and then a full six-page six feedback sheet on how we'd actually performed at this interview. And there was nothing mentioned about my weight. What was mentioned was the fact that I had no interest in anybody else other than myself and that I would not be able to work as part of a team. It's pretty damning. I threw that in the rubbish bin. I wish I had it now, but no, I just I was like, what do they know? How can they tell that And like you know, one day's worth of, you know, looking at me. Heck. That was hard. Mm. It was hard. Mm. I wasn't living up to my expectations mm. of myself in terms of achievement. Yeah, and then a number of things happened in my family that I couldn't control. Um, my parents' marriage split up and my dad left to go back overseas. And I uh, part of those plans and designs was that I was... I had in my mind that I was going to work with him, you know, work and with with him, and that that had gone. And so all of these things were kind of just my life wasn't going according to my plan at 23, and I just couldn't see. And what happened actually was that I was going to get married to this man, and I just didn't feel like I could do that honestly. I just felt so unlovable and like there were so many secrets we'd been living together for two years by this stage and you know I was still dealing basically I said that the money was for things other things but basically it was all for food and so also I didn't get want to get married in a size 22 wedding dress I didn't want to yeah, so we were down here. We were, my husband and I were living in Auckland at the time. We came down to Christchurch. We were doing a lot of planning of 
of the wedding, just with my mum and with his parents. And, yeah, I just, it was just, instead of being a fun thing or a happy thing, it was I was just so miserable. Ah. And I made a New Year's resolution to stop eating chocolate because I just knew I didn't have another Monday in me. I heard someone say that and I just totally related. I just didn't have another diet in me. I'd been dieting for the last 12 years. Like I just couldn't do it anymore so I couldn't see how I was ever going to be able to lose weight. And that's what I thought the problem was. I thought the problem was the weight. I just, yep, made a news resolution to stop eating chocolate. It didn't work. I was... Oh, it kind of worked and that it, no, it didn't work. <laughs> I, it was past midnight and we went past a service station that sold three chocolate bars for $2, which tells you how long ago this was. This is <laughs> 20 odd years ago. And I just, I just had to stop. I had to stop and get those chocolate bars. And in my mind, I thought, I know it's past midnight, but I haven't gone to sleep and woken up yet. So my New Year's resolution doesn't start until the next day. And so I ate those three chocolate bars before I went to sleep. Yeah, and then a number of things happened that New Year's around our family and there were, there were people that ended up in hospital with alcohol poisoning and then there were others that were doing drugs and it was just all... It, there was a lot of other people that I could point the finger at and go, oh, I'm not as bad as that. And then at some point shortly after that... I realised that I had been doing exactly the same thing as they had been doing, that there was there could be no judgement there because they had their alcohol, they had their drugs, but I had my food and I was doing exactly the same thing. And then a moment of honesty happened in that my mother sent me out to the kitchen to get a pen. We were doing wedding stuff. I think it was for a pen. But what happened was I got into the kitchen, I opened the freezer door and I was eating ice cream out of the ice cream tub with my fingers and it was going in my mouth and as it was happening, that's the point where I kind of became conscious of what I was doing and it was like, how did I get here? What, how did this even happen that I'm eating and what did I get sent into the kitchen for? And for the first time I went back to my mum and I said, look, I know you sent me into the kitchen for something, but this is what I was doing. And I told her what I was doing. Heck, that's quite big to be honest about that. Yeah. And then at that point, the day after that, she told me about a neighbour who had been 12-stepped for a food fellowship. And I knew that I knew some other people that were in AA and, and I'd seen their transformation. I'd seen them before they'd gone to AA and after they'd come to AA and and that transformation was just so obvious. And so I thought, oh, well, maybe if that AA worked for them, maybe this food fellowship, maybe these 12 steps will work for me for food. And, yeah, and shortly after that I went to my first meeting. And so you already had a bit of an insight into 12-step fellowships. You weren't surprised by the solution. Hmm. I was really surprised that there was a solution, Louise. I, I just, the only thing I knew was that I'd seen this one person go to AA and that they'd gone from being quite a scary person to a really, really kind person. And so I wasn't afraid of it. I didn't know anything about them other than I'd seen movies where they go 
hi, my name is so-and-so and I'm an alcoholic or whatever. But I wasn't afraid of it because I'd seen that it had been good for that person. But no, I, I didn't expect there to be a solution. I expected that there would be a bunch of overweight people sitting in a room commiserating about the fact that you can't buy clothes for your size and that, you know, what do you do about chafing in between your thighs? What do you do when the safety belt can't actually get around you in the car? Like, for me, it was getting to the point with my weight where I would have to pull the car seat so far, and I'm short, so I'd have to pull it back to be able to get the safety belt around me, but then I couldn't reach the steering wheel. Oh, dear Lord. (laughs) So I was like, it was just, it was, you know, like, what do you do about those things? Like, you might have a solution for those things. Okay, so more of a support group. Yeah. Yeah, okay, okay. And instead you found... My my life, you know, because it's not just about the weight (laughs) and it's not just about the food. I really, really think that food was my solution and the fact that I got through my teenage years and my childhood was because I was eating. Mm. It was it was the answer. I you know, it talks about in the big book that this fellowship, you know, this this disease of addiction will take you to the gates of insanity or death. And I just really believe that that would have been my path if I didn't have a solution. And to find out that I don't have to live my life controlling others and that I don't have to have all the answers and I don't have to direct Everything. What a relief. Oh, what a relief. <laughs> and to have a relationship, to have got married a normal weight, to have had people that are still in this fellowship today at my wedding, to be there for me when I had my two children, to have, like, I just know that everything that I have in my life has been given to me through the 12-step fellowship, going to meetings, working those 12 steps in my life, handing my life over to a higher power, it just, it's just saved my life and given me a life that I could never have even dreamed of. And that position of neutrality around the food, mm. I mean, what is that like? It's just, it's just not even a thing. It's just, with anything, food, alcohol, I, I work around a lot of young people and you know they talk a lot about how much they drink and how much and all the restaurants that they go to and the food that they have and and it's just and I'm the one that's the addict and I'm the one that they can put the box of chocolates on my desk because they know that I'm not going to eat any of them and I just I don't even want them I don't and that's amazing that's so amazing I remember that first year just before we got married Lots of people were giving us gifts, and I think we got given 14 boxes of chocolates. And I just had to get rid of them. Like, I just had to, like, give them away to other people. And my poor husband was like, can we keep one? (laughs) Can we please keep one box of chocolates? Whereas now it's just not an issue. It's amazing. And so working the steps, a scary prospect. Some of those steps look a bit scary. Yeah, I was just a bit clueless, <laughs> I think, Louise. I think oh, I'm just so grateful for them, actually. And I don't, I'm kind of grateful that I was clueless because I don't know, there's a, there's a lot of sacrifice and a lot of 
honesty and a lot of, oh, what does it talk about, that unflattering point of departure. It's really hard to know that I'm not perfect and that I'm not a Wonder Woman and that actually I get things wrong a lot. And I do find that, I do find that really hard. I find that really hard, that I have to look at my part and that I have to I have to stop blaming others. It's just so convenient to blame others. Isn't it just? <laughs> <laughs> um, but that actually, you know, that the work, the work is my own work. Yeah. Mm. But also a lot of peace. Mm. You know, also actually now having had enough experience to know that even though this is going to be hard, whatever it is that I need to get honest about or I need to let go of, mm. you know, there's still a lot of having to let go of a lot of things. Whatever, whatever, I I know that it will be better. Like, I just know that it gets better and it will be better. So it's like, it's hard, but it's also peace. I really enjoyed something you said the other day about if you can't let it go, let it be. and. You know what a what a great thing because life is challenging. Yeah, mm. definitely, definitely. And so along with that pace, obviously, there's a big aspect of the program which is the spiritual aspect and and having a higher power. Did you have something that was your higher power before you came in? Yeah, yep. Grew up with within a Christian tradition, a Christian Methodist tradition. And somehow I had in my head, again, I think because I was so self-centred and the world revolved around me, I just thought a higher power, God, what you want to call it, um, was like Santa Claus. And that I would just give God my list of things that I wanted and that I would be given everything, everything that I wanted, that God was there for me to do what I wanted God to do. I, I'm embarrassed about that now, but it's like, <laughs> it's definitely something that has changed. I don't feel like that today. Um, my prayers have changed from, God, please stretch the time out so that I can do everything that I want to do in a day, into how can I be of maximum use to you and to others, and then to go about my day ready to be um, interrupted by the next thing or just yeah, what is that next thing in front of me to do and let that day unfold and trust that however that day unfold is is as it should be is as it is actually not as it should be but is as it is it just is as it is and I don't know how I get to be useful I don't know how what I do I, I don't know how it helps but I will just do the next thing in front of me. and That's beautiful. It's, it's living surrender, really. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Carla. The time has flown <laughs> and we've got to the end, which is such a shame because it's just been so, so enjoyable. Thank you. So thank you so much. If you have heard anything today which you've related to or would like to know more about us, please go to our website, www.com aeanz.org There are three meetings a week in Christchurch as well as a monthly worldwide meeting on Zoom A podcast of our show will be available on iTunes and Spotify 
as well as the Plains FM website, plainsfm.org.nz. Our show goes out on the fourth Monday of each month at midday. Thank you for listening, and I trust you go well. Until we catch up next month on Addictive Eaters Anonymous on air, Plains FM 96.9.